Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church today, and Happy New Year, day early. Let's begin by praying. Father, when you saw that the human race had fallen, you didn't destroy us and begin again. You took us and gave us a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, your precious Son. And Father, we know that it took his death as the perfect sacrifice to atone for all our sins, the innocent one and dying for the guilty. And we know that he was buried, and on the third day you raised him from the dead so that all could see that your righteousness had been vindicated and that he truly is the Son of God. This morning, Father, we will be, we're going to turn back to the Gospel of John and be with your Son and his disciples. And we ask as we do so that we would concentrate and that we would understand something additional about what happened that night. We pray for all the saints and all their needs. Pray for any of those who are suffering in any way or shape or form this morning, Father. We also pray and thank you that we have sorrow turned into joy when we look at you and your son. And we just want to thank you once again for all your gifts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand now and sing a congregation song. You know, those, those songs that were written, those classic Christmas hymns and, and other, um, they are amazing to me in that they'll teach a whole Bible lesson in the lyrics, you know. And every stanza has great meaning in it. So, I mean, it's organized. You just learned a teaching on the significance of gold, frankincense, and myrrh just by singing a song. So I encourage you, by the way, to listen to some of the old hymns. They're marvelous. Many of them, now you have to be careful, not all of them are accurate, you know, but a lot of them really give you great truths from the Bible to meditate on. Okay, the title of today's message, we're back in the Gospel of John, and the title is, Your Grief Will Be Turned Into Joy. Turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 16. John, chapter 16, verse 16. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but, Your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy 
away from you. This morning we're going to start with the big picture of this passage. There we go. I want to set the stage. I want to give you the big picture, but where we are. We're in the last section of the, what was called the Upper Room Discourse. You know, I mean, it, it basically began in chapter 14, and then now it ends at the end of chapter 16. We've seen that Jesus has been teaching the disciples, preparing them. He's been teaching them new things that especially, we just finished a whole section about the fact that he's the vine, for example, and the disciples are the, are the branches. He talked about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the convicting ministry. So there were new things. But this morning, so we are now at the conclusion of that. Okay, We're starting now with the last part, John chapter 16, verses 16 to 33. And now this is the absolute final message that Jesus has for disciples before he leaves them. So it's a very, very, very significant thing, speech, information. It's the, again, it's the last, he is now, after this is done, the, the, the magnificent chapter 17, but that's him and the Father alone. And then after that, he then they are moving towards the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to have tremendous suffering and the disciples won't understand. They'll fall asleep. Then they'll be invaded by the Roman soldiers and the chief priests' militia and then they'll be taken and then from there forward he's taken away and the disciples scatter. That's about to happen. And these are the last words that he's giving them to prepare for that. So that's a very significant passage. Not that anyone others isn't, but this one in particular is. Well, what we have here in chapter 16, starting in verse 16, is this. Jesus is picking up where he had left off at the end of chapter 14. In, in just a moment, we're going to go back and look at the end of chapter 14. Because there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a line of thought that Jesus has, and he ends at the end of chapter 14. And then, as it were, he puts that aside for a little while, and he, he brings up these new things. And as we know, those new things that he's going to bring up are for the church age believer primarily. And so he's, he's looking out around a corner into the future. But then he realizes that he's going to leave them. And he's got to prepare them once again as the time is now moving to right at the door. These events are going to occur. And so, but let's go back now and look at the end of chapter 14. Look at John chapter 14, starting in verse 28. John 14, starting in verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. We saw that when he says, get up, let us go from here, those are, that's, they're, they're physically going to do that. 
They're going to, we saw, they're going to, they have already left the upper room after chapter 14, and they're walking through the, the city of Jerusalem on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so what he, when he's teaching in chapter 15 and first part of chapter 16, in fact, all of chapter 16, he's walking with them closer and closer and closer to the events that will kick off the final chapter in his human life before he was raised from the dead. We saw that, that at, at one point they passed by the temple, and at that time Herod's temple uh, had, a, had a huge grapevine on display. And again, it's poignant to think about the fact that perhaps he looked at that, and then he said, I am the vine. In any event, that's, that's where here we end up, and he's, he's saying, get up, let us go from here. But I want you to notice some things about this section in chapter 14, the last few verses of chapter 14. Because again, after that, he's going to break things off and talk about new things. The vine and the branches to begin with. But I want you to see similarities now. between where he left off here at the end of chapter 14 and where he's picking things up now in the passage that we just saw in chapter 16. For example, we notice that Jesus is talking about what's going to happen soon. And by soon, in a matter of days, we know. So in other words, before he gets to chapter 15, he's really talking about the short term. And notice in verse 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. But that's interesting because he's going to talk about grief and joy. And here he's looking out Father, right? We know now that him going to the Father occurs 40 days after he's raised from the dead. Okay, so he's looking out, you know, in the, in the medium term, if I could put it that way. Well, I say that because when we get back, and we're going to see this in, in our passage this morning, he's collapsed that time frame. He's just going to look at a few days now. Okay, so, but here he's still talking about more in the future when he ascends into heaven. And then he says in verse 29, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. And, and, and that's when he talks about future things, he's basically predicting them. And he's saying, now when you see exactly occurring what I said, then you can believe and have confidence in me. And the other thing. So, for example, if I said you're about to have great grief and you do have it, then you can be reminded also of the fact that I then told you that your grief will be turned into joy. Can you see that? So when one thing happens, it gives them Confidence. They can, they can hold out for maybe a day or two, whatever really it takes, because they have that hope at the end. By the way, those of you who are studying Isaiah with us, you know that that's a pattern that Isaiah used again and again and again. And it would be the same thing. He would say, you're going to go through something now as a nation, but here's the hope that you're looking forward to. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do now when we get back to chapter 16. But again, here in chapter 14, where he ends off, so I want you to see how this really flows. At the end of 14, he goes right into the same material again, starting in chapter 16, verse 16. So again, Jesus talks about what's going to happen soon. And, and we know it's a matter of days. And we saw the same thing in our passage this morning. He also talked about going away from his disciples and then returning. And that's pretty much lining up exactly with what we just read. 
in a little while I will go, in a little while I will come back. So again, there's tremendous uh, connection here between the end of chapter 14 and picking things up in chapter 16, verse 16. Now, there are some differences. For example, here, and I've mentioned it to you already, he's emphasizing that he's going to the Father. So again, he's got a little wider time frame that he's going to collapse when we get back to chapter 16. Right, so, he's, so he's talking about sort of the bigger picture. He came from the Father. He has a mission. He's going back to the Father. Okay? So that's, that's, sort, of, that's sort of the heavenly to human, I mean the earthly part. But when we get to chapter 16, he's going to narrow into what's going to happen here on earth in the next few days. Then, by the way, he'll get back to that. He'll also talk once again about the big picture, but he's going to focus on what they're going to need in the next three days. So again, back in chapter 14, earlier in the Upper Room Discourse, he's emphasizing he's going to the Father. And he said, you should have joy that I'll be going to the Father. That's going to, he's going to talk about joy in our passage today. You will have grief, but your grief will be turned into joy. But the source of the joy he will talk about in our passage this morning isn't him going back to the Father. Because they're going to need something right away. And they're going to get it. And we're going to see this morning, basically, what we're going to look at this morning is the, 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 what, he, what he said, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And we're going to see the answers to what perhaps you're wondering, what the disciples were wondering. is basically, what does he mean? You know, what's the little while? What's going to happen to have give us grief? And then what's the next little while? And then what's going to happen after that that's going to bring that grief into joy, turn that grief into joy? But here he's talking about a joy after those events when he goes back to the Father that he wishes they had, but they didn't. <laughs> See, he, he's going to have to... That's part of the thing about compressing the time frame is to give them hope in the shorter term because of where they're at. They're grieving. In other words, if he said, you should rejoice because I'm going away, and they're like, we don't want you to go away. You know, that would be a disaster. You're, you're our leader. You're the Messiah after all. Why would the Messiah leave earth and then come back later? Why is he going back to the Father? It seems like he's got unfinished business here on earth. So that wasn't a source of joy for them, but we'll see what will be this morning. And he, again, he talks about loving the Father and doing his will. And we know what he's talking about. And he's given hints of this. He's talking about going to the cross. If I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. You know, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Or all the way back in chapter 4, when, when, the, uh, when the Samaritans gathered around him after they had heard the report from the Samaritan woman at the well, And they said to him, you are the savior of the world. And even back in chapter 3, John called him the lamb of God. And that word lamb is pregnant with meaning in Judaism. Basically because the lamb, all the way back, really to Cain and Abel, right? When Abel sacrificed the lamb, and it was the proper sacrifice, because it did prefigure what Jesus was going to do on the cross. So, And all the way through the Old Testament, you have the lamb. As a sacrifice, as a sacrifice. Abraham was, was, was called by the Lord to sacrifice his son on the altar. 
However, at the last moment, the angel comes and says, no, no, now God knows how much you love him. We're going to have a substitute, right? In that case, a ram, but of the same family. We're going to have a substitute. So that image of the lamb is pregnant with meaning. And so when John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God, he's saying, behold the perfect sacrifice. So there was definitely, he had, he had said this before, but you know, as we've seen so often, the disciples didn't really understand what he was talking about. When he said in chapter 2, and he was, he was looking at the temple, and he told the, the Pharisees that he's destroy this temple, and I rebuild it in three days. And, and the disciples didn't understand at all what he meant. And they wouldn't until after that a little while, that second little while, when he's raised from the dead. He also talks about the world in both passages. And I'm not going to dwell on that. But here he does, he does something he doesn't do in chapter 16, which he also talks about the ruler of this world. Because remember, Jesus' death defeats the ruler of the world. Okay? So those are some differences. But again, the same general subject. He's going away and he's coming back. All right. So I want you to see that. Now let me map this out a little more. So now we're at the end of chapter 14. And then I'm telling you, he sort of drops that line of thinking only to pick it up again in chapter 16, verse 16. So that begs the question, what about in between? You know, and, and in between, of course, we have John 15 and then the first half of John 16, where he's de- dealing about something completely different. In other words, he's no longer talking about what's going to happen in the next three to 40 days. He's talking about after that. You know, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Well, that, that whole fruitful life can't occur and won't occur until after Jesus dies, raised, is raised from the dead, and goes back to the Father and has the Spirit come down. So that time frame is expanded away from what he's going to talk about now. A little while and you won't see me. A little while after that and you will see me. So, so, so he's talking about new things in between. His, his preparing them for what's about to happen in the next day as we now know. And it's interesting. If you to read again, of course, I encourage you from time to time or maybe a little bit at a time to keep reading the Gospel of John. You know, you'll never, you'll never, um, ex, you know, be, ex, you'll never exhaust the, de- the depths of what's said. You know, in particular, you know, if you were to go back this week and read the very beginning of the Gospel of John, just the first 18 verses, now that we've seen all that we've seen thereafter, and you go back to that, you, it'll now mean more. It'll mean more. Because you've seen, you know, John is basically set, setting things up in the biggest of all pictures at the beginning of chapter 1. He's talking about the beginning. Talk about time. Here we're going to have it compressed to a few days. At the very beginning, he's talking about all of eternity. In the beginning was the Word. And that wasn't the beginning of creation. It was before that. So, so, and at the same time, he's still talking about, ultimately, here's why the Messiah, the Son of God, came. So anyway, it's good to read back again especially in the Gospel of John, because of the tremendous linkage and the tremendous storyline that continues. But here in chapter 15, we're not here, but in that middle part that we've just completed, 
it's really different from what came before and what comes after. For example, we've seen this morning that Jesus is now going to say something and then there's going to be a question from the disciples which he'll address, though not necessarily in the way they wished him to. We've seen that before. But the, the main point there is that there's dialogue. Once again, if you would go back and read John 15, 1 through John 16, 15, it's not a dialogue. The whole thing, if you have a red letter Bible, it's all in red. It's just Jesus speaking and teaching. One of the reasons for that is that they have no, they have no frame of reference, really, for what the things are that he's going to say. They're all new, and they're just sitting there and listening to that. He speaks of the future things. There's no questions from the disciples. He's speaking of things that which he does not give a time frame for. Why? Because the time frame is expanded, and they're not ready for that. He speaks of unprecedented things. In this section in between, like the vine and the branches, as I've mentioned already, and the fruitful life that they are to live, and, and, and abiding in the vine, and the vine abiding in them, uh, continuing in God's word. And then have the love of God in your hearts, the love of Christ. And then the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world. He says that, but he doesn't give a time frame. One of the reasons why is that that's, that's going to be a whole new age inaugurated. An age where the Spirit is on earth and Jesus is in heaven. Okay, But when we get back now to the timeline that he's really on, there's no time to think about that. We're going to see that. He gives it to them. He gives it to them as sort of information that they can that they can store away. Although they didn't understand that either, they wouldn't understand that really until not only Jesus rises from the dead, but he ascends into heaven, and then the Holy Spirit comes down, and then things start to make more sense. But again, back in forward in John sixteen sixteen, he's now re, he's re, sort of picking up. Yeah, and please turn there now. He's sort of picking up where he left off at the end of chapter 14. Talking about going away and coming back. John, back in our passage today now. John 16, starting in verse 16. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. I hope you can see that this is what he's doing here is sort of compressing the time frame and giving them to think about this in more detail. You know, but early on he says, I'm going away and I'm coming back. Here, though, he says it in a different way so that there's a different picture to look at. Now he's saying there's a little time frame and then you won't see me. But that'll only be for a little while because then you'll see me again. And when he said that, look at verse 17. Some of the disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. By the way, is that, that's exactly what Jesus said, right? Back in verse 16, a little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, in a little while, and you will see. In other words, they didn't understand anything of what he said. And then they make a mistake, because after all, if you already don't understand something that somebody's saying, the worst thing you can do is add more information into it to confuse yourself further. And that's what they do. You know, they, they say, well, he also said, remember, he's going back to the Father. So what is he talking about? Well, let's think about all of that. And that's going to confuse him. A little while, just stick to what Jesus said. That's a great lesson for life, by the way. A little while and you will not see me. 
and again in a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. Verse 18. So they were saying, what is this that keep talking about it? What is this that he, they're obsessing on it? What is it that he's saying a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Well, verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. So he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. But I want you to notice that. What, jo- what is John doing here in recounting this? He's repeating. We hear that expression three times, right? In verse 16, a little while, and you will no longer see me. A little while, and you will see me. Then, then John recounts the fact that the disciples were talking about that and it quiz, they were quiz, quizzical, they didn't understand. What is this thing that he's telling us? Repeat, a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while and you will see me. Now see, because John could have just said, they didn't understand what he said. But instead he goes and he repeats it, right? And then again, you know, there's, there, they ask the question again, what is, it, what is he talking about? And then Jesus says, I know what, what you want to know. Um, and I, I, when I said, here we go again, the third time, a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, and you will see me. Again, John could have said, he, as, as Jesus just told them that they were deliberating what he had just said. But again, he repeats it. And we know that that's always significant when we see something repeated. It's something that we really want to pay attention to in and of itself. Well, once again, we have the disciples baffled by what Jesus is saying, baffled by his words. What is he? Notice he says, what is this thing he's telling us in verse 17? We don't get it. And then in verse 18, we don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) You know, it's like, wouldn't you at this point, maybe if you were the disciples, just say, relax, we'll get the answer by and by. But no, they're always so disturbed and worked up. Who does that remind you of? Maybe me? Maybe you? Don't we do the same thing in the Word of God? Well, I don't understand that. I'm not going to read a word more until I get a vision from heaven. Give me the answer to that. I don't know about you, but I do that all the time. Uh, There's more pressure on me because not only do I have to get the answer, perhaps, and I have to teach on it, you know, so it's urgent. Give me the answer, Lord. But that's, of course, not how we learn. You know, how do we learn? A little bit at a time. We're not ready for calculus before we've mastered, you know, addition and subtraction. And that's, of course, what Jesus, you know, it's interesting. I just thought that's what Jesus is talking about this morning. A little while, subtraction. You'll no longer see me. Again, in a little while, addition. You will see me in any event. So I guess I can add three things I like to talk about. Food, sports, and math. Because, you know, anyway. That, that's neither here nor there. Okay, so what is he saying here? He's saying, he's saying, listen, they're saying, and he repeats, that there's something here that they're really fixated on, really stumped. And that's a little phrase, in a little while. Now, when you're a kid and your parents say you that, you know, Dad, Dad, when are we going to get to the park? In a little while. Yeah, but Dad, I want to know exactly the minutes and the seconds. What do you mean a little while? That's exactly what the disciples are saying. What do you, we need to know. Give us the exact time, right? 
And then, they, then he says, you know, then you tell us something's going to happen and everything's going to change and we're going to grieve. What's going to happen? And so forth. But I want you to notice that there are two of these phrases, right? And this is the frame of mind that he wants them to be in. A little while, a little time period, something's going to happen, you won't see me. A little while after that, you will see me. But they're stumped. They want to know what he's talking about. They may have wondered again, how long is a little while, Lord? And then a little while and you will no longer see me. He's saying there's something that's going to happen. Something is going to happen in a little while that's going to cause them to no longer see him. And what is that? Clearly they would want to know that. Clearly we're going to see that they're not ready to know that. Exactly. Then, after another event, another little while, they will see him again. Well, what's that event going to be? We're totally stumped now. We're confused. We're frustrated. We don't know what he means by a little while either time. We don't know what's going to happen to make us grieve. We don't know what's going to happen to make us rejoice. Tell us, tell us, tell us. They're confused. But I want you to notice that Jesus confined his statement to those two little whiles, what comes after. I want to, I want to, I want to emphasize this myself. Why? Because the disciples aren't, aren't content with that, even though they don't even understand that. What do they do? They add something else to the confusion. Because I go to the Father. Now, sure, he said that before, but that's not what he's talking about now. Because now it's like you guys have to zero in on these two little whiles. And there'll be time again to talk about what I was saying. Because you didn't even rejoice when you heard I was going back to the Father. And he doesn't bring it up here in this, in this final message that he has for them. They, in other words, they add words to a statement that Jesus said. Here's a big clue. Here's a big hint. A big uh, recommendation for studying the word of God. It's never a good idea to add words that aren't there to a statement that's in the scriptures. Never a good idea. Yet, of course, we know people do it all the time. You know, that's one, of, that's one of the tricks, by the way, or one of the things that we like to do, which is when I don't understand something, I'm going to make my own meaning so that I do understand it. In order to do that, I'm going to add some stuff. I was dealing with this week with, um, with a discussion about really a passage that we have seen when Jesus talks about the fact that um, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them to me. Right? Well, that's a favorite passage, by the way, of the five-point Calvinists, right? To say, you know what? You didn't, God just picks, hey, I want that one. And he just says, here's this one, right? Now, but, of course, Jesus said that. So there's some truth to that. But certainly, they add to that what they want you to understand, even though it's not true, right? Because in that same, and I'm I'm getting off, but in that same passage, he comes back and says, all you got to do is believe, and you'll have eternal life. And God doesn't want you to add things to either statement. Why? Because that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is supposed to take those two things, right, and help you to accept them as they are. And it's the same thing here. Please just focus on what I am saying now. Don't link what I'm saying now to something I said earlier when that's not what's on the table right now. So when they say, I go to the Father, you know, basically Jesus ignores it. He puts that aside. And as we see, he comes back and just deals with those two little whiles 
by themselves. That will be good enough now. You see, and Jesus is always at the clarity, simplicity, not complexity, not confusion. Our God is what? Not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, why would he compress this timeline now? Why had he earlier talked about, you know, more expansive timelines, and now he's just zooming in? Well, the answer is because now the hour has come. You know, up till now, Jesus would say, an hour is coming. You don't have much more time. He would even say, an hour is coming, and an hour is, or almost here. Well, right now, it's right here at the door. It's right upon them. In a matter of literally minutes, they're going to be in the place where things are going to happen that are going to be out of control. It's here. Events were about to unfold quickly. You know, they've had a wonderful evening, a last final meal with the Lord all by themselves, just sitting there at the feet of the Lord, as it were. And here and they didn't always understand them, but they were there and they were in that setting where things kind of were timeless for a little while. That's going to change in a, matter of, in a matter of a few, little, little while, right? A very little while. That's going to change and things are going to get chaotic and out of control. And that's going to happen very, 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 very soon. Jesus now needs them to simply focus on the immediate future. My son's in the military, right? There are times when they'll train about strategic vision, right? And times they'll, they'll say, here's, here's, a, here's how, what you do in a whole battle. But then there's a time when it's right in front of you and all you can focus on in the next five minutes. That's, what, that's what's going on here. Jesus just says, listen, simply focus on the immediate future. That's more than enough. Let's take this one day at a time. Let's take this one hour at a time. And boy, isn't that something that we have to learn to do? You know, we're always projecting... Oh, the worst can happen, or things are going to be great. We either think things are going to be all great or all terrible in the future. When neither of those things is really true, because we're going to go through things. You know, the world hates us. And yet, we have hope, and we always have peace with the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the fighting gets fierce, the goal is to survive and live another day. And make no mistake about it, they are about to enter a time of intense sorrow. Intense grief. Why? Because the Lord is going to be taken from them. The very thing that they, 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 they dreaded, the idea of ever being separated from him, is going to happen. And they, they, may, they didn't understand it yet, but we know he's going to die. And, and that, 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 that combination of Messiah... And, you know, Old Testament understanding of Messiah, he would come and set up the kingdom and he'd reign forever. And now all of a sudden they're looking at actual events that are about to happen and the Messiah is going to die. That that can't be. How is he going to set up his kingdom if he's dead? So that's going to be a time of intense sorrow. Peter already was predicted to be denying him. But they're all going to run away from him. They're going to think it's the end. There's going to be a time of intense sorrow. Intense grief. Peter, above all, you know, Peter was sort of the leader. And he's, he's going to demonstrate, you know, in, in stark terms, the fact that I will never leave you even if I have to die for you. And then he's scared away by a little 
girl at a fireplace. And then, we, then, when, then he realizes the full weight of what's just happened. Again, a prediction that comes true, but one he wishes wouldn't come true. Right? And then he's just destroyed, demolished on the inside. And there's a time of sorrow and a time of grief. Well, when you're about to get into a time of sorrow or you're in it, the one thing you need as you're going through hell is something to hold on to to get you through it. And they're going to need that now, this very evening. In other words, when they're about to go through this time of grief and sorrow, they're going to need reassurance more than ever before. More than ever before. They could, before they could think about it and not really like the idea, now it's upon them. Now the darkness is going to come. I mean, symbolized by the fact, when, not symbolized, but pictured by the fact that when Jesus dies on the cross, there's going to be three hours of darkness across the whole known world. They need reassurance that that darkness will not last forever. We need the same thing. We go through dark periods in our lives. For some reason, we think that it's never going to end. This is it. Everything that I thought I was living for is gone. I think my relationship with God is irreparable. It's damaged. We, We need, whether we recognize it or not, reassurance at that moment. No, it's dark now, but soon darkness will turn into light. The same sun that went down last night is going to come back up tomorrow morning. They need that. They need reassurance. This is not the end. Weeping, yes, it's going to last for the night. But a shout of joy will come in the morning. Right now, they can't bear any more until that grief does turn to joy. Then they will be able to go again. And the things that they didn't understand before, after their grief turns into joy, now it's going to make sense. If you read the Gospels, not just John, but particularly the others, you can see that, uh, well, even John, there are things, if we go back, where he says, they don't understand this, but after he's raised from the dead, they will. After he's raised from the dead, Jesus is going to have a time where he actually goes back to all these events in the Old Testament, predicting his death and resurrection. And for the first, he's going to explain them. I mean, that was a Bible study. (laughs) He's going to explain all those things, and then they'll be like, oh, their eyes are going to be opened. But now he's going to take things one step at a time. And we're going to do the same thing this morning. We're just going to take that same time frame and explore it ourselves. Perhaps answer the questions that we have. But the first thing we're going to do, is the greatest thing that we're going to do, is simply allow ourselves just listen to the answer. Okay? Because the answer is marvelous. And in fact, it's more than enough for one sitting. In fact, it's the one event that, that, that sort of crystallizes everything in the Gospel of John. You know, when he says in chapter 20, he talks about believing these things of John. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. Well, how does that all come about? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're to believe. So it's a marvelous moment that they don't understand what's happening, as usual. But now let's just listen ourselves to the answer that Jesus gave them. Jesus, what do you mean in a little while? What do you mean that you're going to go away? He's going to give them the answer. 
And that answer, of course, follows on in the next four verses, John 16, 19 to 22. Now, if you only care about getting the answers you want, you're going to be sorely disappointed in these next four verses. So were they probably. I mean, they're, they're, what they wanted to know is all they wanted to know. And in a sense, they probably were waiting. They are probably not even listening to any of this stuff until after. They're thinking, well, he's going to finally give me the answer exactly the way I want it. What do I mean? Tell me exactly what, how much time a little while is. What's going to happen that you're not going to see me? Tell me exactly what that next little while is. And then what happens after that? Well, let's see how Jesus actually answers there. Question, verse 19 again. Here's, here's the question. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? Excuse me, about this? Then I said, a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while and you will see me. Now notice the answer. Truly, truly. I always told you, when you see truly, truly, it means wake up. This is important. If you've been asleep for this, for this message so far this morning, now would be a good time to wake up. <laughs> right? What does, he, what does he tell them is the answer? He says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament in a little while. All right? you, will, you will weep and you will lament. And not only this, that world that hates you is going to rejoice. You're going to be happy. You're going to be gree and grief. They're going to be really, really happy. They might be thinking at that point, what could that be? And when's that going to happen? Well, of course, they're missing the point. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. And we'll see, that's exactly what's happened, by the way, at the cross. You know, his enemies, they were rejoicing. But only for a while. See, it works the other way for them. Just like we've seen, by the way, in, in, in Isaiah, where, where now the people of God, the, the, the nation Israel, is under tremendous suffering, the cup of, the cup of, of God's anger. Remember we've seen that recently? But then there will be a time when that cup of anger will be taken and given to the enemies, and they'll have a time of rejoicing that will never end. And it's the same thing here. You know, the people surrounding the cross, his enemies, were celebrating, taunting him. They thought, Satan thought that his hour had come and he'd been victorious, not realizing what's going to happen. Right? They rejoiced the world, and the, and the ones that loved Jesus, his disciples, his closest friends, will grieve. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. And Peter's about to weep and lament in a little while. But the world will rejoice. You will grieve. But, but, ah, but is a tremendous word in the, in the Bible. Because so often it comes with some really bad news, difficult stuff, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in Ephesians chapter 2. But... God. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. In that case, because of the tremendous love with which he loved us. Here we have another but that turns everything around 180 degrees. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament and the world that hates you will rejoice. You will grieve. But your grief will be turned into joy. I want to just talk for a moment about that expression before we move on. Your grief will be turned into joy. Hmm. You could pass over that and say, okay, grief, joy, great, got it. 
But he says it very particularly so you understand what's really going to happen. He says, your grief will be turned into joy. In other words, he's not even saying your, your grief will be replaced by joy as if there's no connection because there's every connection. The very grief you have turns into the joy. If you didn't have the grief, you wouldn't have the joy. And that's so true. You know, Paul would say later on that, you know, momentary light affliction is turning into an eternal weight of glory. One precedes the other. One, in a, it, not in a sense, one is necessary in, before the other one can happen. And then he's going to illustrate this in a tremendous, simple way, as he always does, something that everyone could relate to. But to illustrate what he's saying, look at verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. Hmm. Her hour has come. The disciples' hour has come. Jesus' hour has come. So hopefully they make the connection here. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But, do you see the but again? It's tremendous. Once again, 180 degree turns. She's, she's, she's suffering. She has labor pains. She doesn't know how long it's going to last. What's a little while? My husband says, just a little while. Well, what's that going to be? Is it going to be 12 hours? Is it going to be two minutes? But when she actually gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. In other words, once again, the very depths of that anguish and labor pain sets her up for the tremendous joy that would happen afterwards. The joy that a child has been born into the world. New life. New life. The pains were like death. But then there's new life. And hopefully by that time they're starting to get it and they're starting to maybe say, well, gee, maybe there's something about that, that, that illustration Jesus just gave that's going to be true for us. Maybe we're going to have suffering. We're, going to, we're not going to be able to stand it a minute longer. But then something's going to happen related to new life. And then we're going to have a joy. A joy that really never ends. And not only them, but all the people thereafter who hear the truth of what's going to happen between the two little wiles and believe it, they're going to have joy that will never end. And that's what he says in verse 22. Back to them. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And then your heart will rejoice. And then no one will ever take your joy away from you again. Well, well, but let's let's think about this now, because this is really striking. We've seen this before. Jesus doesn't answer their question at all, does he? He just he wanted he wanted he wanted them to say, well, you know, in three hours the grief's going to begin, and here's why. And then after some time, I don't know what your grief will last, and then boom. Well, what's that exact time? They probably wanted to know that every bit as much. He didn't tell them. He says, that's not what you need right now. He doesn't answer their question. At least he doesn't answer them the way that they thought he should. Doesn't define a little while. Doesn't define the events. But here's the thing. He doesn't, this is, this is going to sound familiar, right? He doesn't give them what they want. He gives them what they need. Hmm. Now, what's better when you come right down to it? 
Is it better to give them what they want? Or is it better to give them what they need? What they need, of course. Well, what do they need now? Well, let's think about this. They're about to go into something they have no idea what's going to hit them. What do they need? Well, I'll tell you what they need. They need the right preparation. Just like we don't know when the evil day will come. But what we do know is that God has given us all the equipment we need, right? The shield of faith and the helmet, all of that. That's what we need to know. So, here's what's about to befall you, and here's how you deal with it. That's what they need. How am I going to deal with this? You know what? Whether it's coming in two minutes or it's two weeks, it doesn't really matter when you say, wait a minute, I'm going to have to handle that. And how, is it going to, how am I going to do that? Well, he basically says, grief shortly. Grief. But shortly after that, joy. And that's all they need to know. They, that's all they need to know. Why? Because anticipating the joy gets you through the pain. And that's enough for them to just hear that and believe it. And so when the grief comes, they can recall that he said, hang in there because you're about to have tremendous joy. After a little while, something's going to happen. And you're going to forget about the grief for the joy of some new life coming on the scene. Just like Jesus at the cross in Hebrews 12 too. The writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, the worst suffering ever. Why? Because the Father had held out, this is in his humanity now, the fact that there will be tremendous joy, there will be tremendous fruit. Not only will he be raised from the dead, he's the first fruits of many others, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And for that joy, he was able to deal with the most excruciating pain anybody has ever experienced. Okay, now look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Well, you know, I'm not going to leave you in suspense any more this morning. Very simply, this is what's happening. He's preparing them for his impending death. That's the grief that he's talking about. His impending death. In a little while, he's going to die. But a few days after that, his resurrection from the dead. And that's the other little while. We now know that it's, you know, on the third day, he rises from the dead. And then joy. We're gonna, at the end today, we're going to see a glimpse of that joy. Just a glimpse. So again, a woman in labor has pain for a little while. But that pain is turned into joy when she sees her newborn child. And that joy endures. It endures. It returns again and again. Now, it is true that once the woman has a child, there's that joy. And then there's also difficulty and heartbreak. Just like Jesus' birth, that Simeon, yeah, Simeon said that, you know what, the sword will come upon you, Mary. 
right? So it's not, I'm not saying that all, we know this, duh. It's not all great after she gives birth, but that joy will return again and again. There will also be moments when she'll once again look at her growing child. Look what's happening. He's, look, he's growing up. Maybe when he gets to be 18, he's now going to have his, his life and his destiny secured or whatever. There'll be a lots of joy, and it'll return again and again and again. Well, so too with the disciples. Their grief will be brief. Their joy will never end. Their grief will be brief. It won't seem that way, but their joy will never end. In comparison, the joy is far beyond all comparison with the grief, grief that caused it. Amazing. Verse 22, therefore you too will have grief now. Now, see the, see the need to just compress the time frame? It's happening now. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will ever, ever, ever take your joy away from you. Jesus will, will, will take the grief away. No one will ever take their joy away. Momentary, light affliction produces unending joy far beyond comparison. Okay, back to the disciples that night in the upper room. Here are the facts. Before the next day ends, Christ will be crucified and will die. In other words, a very little while. A very little while. Before the next day, less than 24 hours. So it's going to happen like that. And they're going to grieve and sorrow and be in the darkness. But, on that third day, well, I'm skipping a step. They'll be, they'll, he'll die. He'll be in the ground buried. So they will literally not see him. Nobody will see him. But that's only a little while. Why? Because after that, on the third day, he will be resurrected from the dead by his father. And that, of course, the joy comes. Right? When he's resurrected from the dead, but by the way, I've, I've taught this before, it's important to understand that when he's resurrected from the dead, the world no longer sees him, period. Why do I say that? Because if you read the, the scriptures, you will see that Jesus only appeared to believers. We're going to look at the end today at 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to see who we, who we came to, only believers. But the disciples will see him again in a little while. On the third day. And then the joy begins. The joy begins. Look at John chapter 20, verse 19. Let's see what happened on that first day of the week. After Jesus is raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene has seen him, but the disciples that were in the upper room that night don't see him until a little while longer. Look at John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, resurrection day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, they are still in the darkness, they are still in the grief, they are still in the sorrow. And then in a moment, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And when he noticed this, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The very stuff of grief and sorrow and pain is what he shows them. Then, then they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. This was the one who died 
and now he's raised from the dead. And then the joy begins. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now it's time to think about the future. Here I am. I'm raised from the dead. You're going to have joy, joy that nobody can take away from you. Now it's time to talk about, okay, now here's what's next. Here's the mission for you guys when I'm gone. And in between those two little whiles, in between them, just think about it. There's a little while they have grief, but now we know that grief is Jesus dying on the cross for us. And then another little while, and he's raised from the dead. He died, he was buried, and the third day he was raised from the dead. What's that? What do we rehearse all the time so that when we go out and, and meet somebody else, their darkness can be turned into joy by listening to the message and believing? What's that called? The gospel. Isn't that the gospel? It's right here between the two little whiles. It's the gospel. Jesus accomplishes the salvation of the whole world in those two little whiles. Please turn to Romans 4.23. As we close. Romans 4.23. And by the way, if you want to show the gospel in the Bible, here are some great passages. Now, you do begin with John. If if, if there's a new person, maybe they're a believer, maybe they're not, and they ask you, where should I start in the Bible? Don't tell them Genesis. (laughs) Tell them Gospel of John. Because that's that's the whole deal. The whole deal is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So whoever believes in him won't perish, but has eternal life. Then you can work, once you get that, now you can work around before and the after. Because, you know, you're not ready to understand Leviticus until you understand what happened at the cross. Because that was the fulfillment of what happened in Leviticus. Start with the Gospel of John, and then right after that, go to the book of Romans. Okay, that's what we're doing. But here's the Gospel. Now, not for his sake. This is Abraham, who believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited the very righteousness of God as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. By the way, that's the message. If you you go to the book of Acts, you will see that one thing is emphasized in every speech just about that an apostle gives to the unbelieving crowds. And that's the resurrection. Because why? That gets somebody's attention. And, and sometimes you have to give them the end of the story so they'll pay attention to the beginning of the story. Okay, so, and here's the same thing. Believe in him who raised our Lord from the dead. Now you're ready for the rest of the story. Who was delivered over, that means his death on the cross, because of our transgressions, our sins, and was raised because of our justification. We sinned, therefore he died. We're justified, therefore he's raised from the dead. This is the gospel of our salvation. As we close, one more passage. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. First Corinthians 15. This is the other passage. I mean, you gotta, you got to go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. It, anytime you're saying, what's the gospel? Here it is. What's the message? 
If I have to boil it all down, and I should, at, for the time frame right before that I want them to understand what it is that they need to believe to be saved, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also have received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, and you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You didn't believe in the resurrection in context. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Notice what's of first importance whenever you're talking to anybody about the Lord, that Christ died for our sins. And by the way, you're going to see all this happens between the two little whiles today. He died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And then after that, he talks about you know, the burial. Clearly, somebody was buried, right, and stays in the grave, is dead. And then risen from, on the third day, and here's the demonstration of that fact. He appeared to Peter, Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren, believers, at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to his brother James, then to all the apostles again, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul, also. So the gospel is contained between the two little whiles. Now the word is going to go out, and the joy is going to spread. And what's that telling everybody God's holiness was vindicated at the cross. That's called, that's called propitiation. Basically, that Jesus is a perfect sacrifice before the Father, whose holiness had been offended by the sins of man and now is vindicated for all to see by the death of Christ on the cross. That's one thing. And then our part, God and sinners reconciled. Sins were paid for. Let me go back. Sins paid for. So first, God vindicated his holiness. Second, second, our sins are paid for at the cross. All between the two little whiles. God and sinners reconciled. The reconciliation. God is completely satisfied. Our sins are taken away. Now we're, the pathway is completely open to, for man and God to be reconciled. Reconcile the whole world to himself. And then whoever believes declared righteous by God forever. That's the joy And when somebody believes, they, like the disciples, can rejoice in the Lord always. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for us and the ability this morning to just focus narrowly. So many great things happen when we do that. We see things, perhaps, we haven't seen before, and we thank you for that gift. We thank you that we've had the opportunity today at the end, to practice in our hearts once again the truth, the simplicity, the power of the message of the gospel. We thank you for that. Father, we also want to pray for unbelievers this morning that they too would have the opportunity, and we know that you will give it to them, after they've been convicted, convinced of their sin and their lack of righteousness and a judgment that's coming that they too have, will hear the message and we pray that they will believe it. And we also pray for ourselves as we now turn back to our lives, re, re, re-energized by the joy that is now in our hearts because we believe, because we know who Jesus is, because he's at your right hand advocating for us, because we have the Holy Spirit. 
But as we do, Father, help us to treasure those truths in our hearts as we go through what could be a tough week. We don't know. But we also know that you're with us no matter what. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We will have Bible study this Thursday, once again. Um, As always, I tell you this, and nobody ever takes me up on it hardly, but that's okay. If you've got a question, all right, about the teaching, all right, you can always email me. If something's so, so what am I saying? Well, I'm saying that, uh, you know, I understand as weak human beings that we sometimes want to know something right away, and I'm okay with that. And you can just email me the question, and I'll do my best to answer it. But that's so much better than just coming up to me on the spot, you know, because I am not the shell answer man, all right? I know a lot of pastors present themselves as that. I'm a guy who likes to go back to the scriptures and get you the best possible answer I can give you. So this is the best way to ask my question. All right, with that, you're dismissed. Enjoy New Year's Eve, but not too much. And we'll see you on Thursday, those of you who are able to make it.